Not all men know the law, and what we don't know we often fear. The ordinary man's contact with the law occurs usually when he walks into a solicitor's office and starts to pour out his troubles. The good solicitor listens carefully, takes up the cause, and sees it through to a conclusion. In other words, he provides the service for which he exists. But he is not universally loved. My only experience with a solicitor was when I purchased my house. Um, I found his dealings quite okay. Uh, his price was reasonable. And, um, well, that's really all. <laughs> I act as my own solicitor, by and large. I found that uh, the solicitor I dealt with was very fair to me. As you know, the scale of fees for house purchases are very high. So this list that I went to, I asked him to do a deal. I was selling the old house we were living in and buying a new one. So I asked him to give me a fair price, well, what I thought was a fair price anyway. And he did indeed. But I went around sort of shopping, you know, that way, shopping for a good price. And I got a good price, so I was very happy with what I got. I suppose you could really handle it yourself, but if you hand it over to a solicitor, well then, well, you have a feeling, I know, that you're on the right track. But uh, actually, I haven't mine completed yet, so it's just in his hands at the moment. I think they're all the one anyway. There's no difference in them, like they just... <laughs> whatever suits them, I think. <laughs> whatever they can get the most money out of it, whatever's the best deal for them. Yeah, just that they are inclined to be very slow about everything they do. Uh, they always seem to keep you waiting uh, months and months. Uh, they seem to be um, only concerned with say business that they're going to capitalize on overnight like house property and that but any other dealings with regard to um like debts bad debts and that are own like you could wait years and years for now whether that's their fault or not i don't know i haven't really had an awful lot of criticism of them except that they're appallingly slow that's the main thing otherwise i found that all right but the only thing is you give them something and six months later you're still trying to get an answer from them i must say i think any solicitor who was anyway quick about getting work done for you they'd make a fortune in this town oh yes really that's they're the last people i would go to well i don't know i had some dealings with them some years back it could have been over just a bicycle you know and uh, they were so fine about everything that i got Bored stiff and almost robbed. Well, the experience I had was was very little, like you know, but it went through okay. I've had a lot of dealings with solicitors in the course of my work, and my general impression is that they know very little about the law. Well, the thing is, they have been good and bad. One particularly good one, and one absolutely bad one. So I think you have to be very careful in your choice and have to inquire amongst friends, not just pick a name out of a phone book. Somebody you can talk to like a friend. You, you can tell them, you can really tell them personal things and your financial situation and rely on them to help you. It was um, on the purchase of a house. And uh, I must say, I was treated just about fairly. Um, I got value, just about value for money. On the whole, I think they're very incompetent, the delay, much too long over cases, something that should be expedited in a few months. I think it takes them years to. Like, once the listener is no good to you, you'd need to. You won't want to catch the other fellow. <laughs> the scales of popularity are weighted against the solicitor. His client often has a rankling grievance, which in his own opinion cries out for instant justice, but the law simply doesn't work that way. The legal processes are slow, detailed, painstaking. 
The need for accuracy, the dotting of each I and the crossing of each T, is part of the credo of the lawyer, but it often infuriates the layman. The client also wants legal aid at what he regards as a reasonable price, and he's often surprised when the final bill is presented. On a programme like this, it's difficult to present actual case histories, because there are too many factors to be considered and weighed one against the other. But, whether fairly or not, the fact remains that there are many people who, for one reason or another, feel a sense of grievance against their legal adviser. Most of them are only too keen to tell their side of the story, and earlier this year they found a sympathetic ear when Brian Bell set up the National Association for Clients of the Legal Profession. I asked him why he set it up. Well, as a result of personal experiences with solicitors in both Dublin and the country, and experienced quite a, an amount of frustration, delays and what have you, I felt that uh, if there were many other people similarly uh, inclined, that we could get together and form a protection society uh, which would uh, help to uh, right many of the ills which I had experienced. Now, as a result of a number of articles appearing in the newspapers at that time, I took up my own case and uh, projected it in one of the newspapers. And I suggested that if people wished, they could write to me and I would start the ball rolling. Within a matter of days, I was inundated with correspondence from all parts of Ireland. This showed to me that the press, indeed, the media, were very powerful. And it was the way in which to express and develop the ills which were inherent in our legal profession generally. Now, uh, the because of the tremendous correspondence which has flowed into me then and is still flowing into me, I became alarmed and uh, carrying out a full-time job, which meant driving 135 miles every day, uh, I realised that this couldn't carry, I couldn't carry on like this, I must make a choice. And that choice I have now made, and I have no doubt that uh, the future, as we, as we carry on, as we develop, and uh, we are developing, we have quite a number of branches throughout Ireland. We have branches Tipperary, Cork, Limerick, which is a very strong one, very healthy, Dublin, uh, Mayo, and in County Meath. I would like to see, and I think it's very necessary now, that we have branches in every county, and perhaps two in some, the bigger counties. We also have quite an amount of correspondence from abroad. This is extremely disturbing, because now our embassies are referring complaints they receive directly to our association. And this, to me, looks as if they, in the past, have tried the normal channels without success. Many of the complaints are shocking and require urgent and immediate attention. We, uh, as a young organisation, are snowed on there and there is no way in which we can attend immediately, much as we would like, to all these complaints. But as we develop, we are uh, progressing each complaint in order of merit. This is, if it's a very serious one, or if there's great hardship involved, we do uh, take it up 
in, in initially with the solicitor concerned. If that fails, we take it up with the Corporate Law Society. And it's only fair to say that in recent months, the Society has shown an awareness which was extinct previously to the needs for uh, investigating their members, uh, members who appear and who are, we know, misbehaving. Could you give me an idea of the volume <coughs> of complaints that you've had? How long are you in existence and how many cases have come to your notice? Well, we were officially formed on the 11th of March last and I have uh, a mammoth mail at home daily uh, in correspondence and what, uh, what have you. Uh, most people register uh, letters to me with their documentation, which is, uh, I'd rather they didn't do it in the early stages. I would say the volume at the moment runs between three and four hundred, and uh, as I say, it's mounting. And we are trying to curb it now so that we can catch up on uh, the initial stages because we do not wish and do not want to become as inefficient as the solicitors have been generally. But this, I, I visualize the anybody who is having dealings with the legal profession anywhere in Ireland, I visualize that they will seek at some time, if not now, sometime in the near future, membership of our association and will we'll be glad to have an association such as ours, a neutral one, which can act as a go-between between their, themselves and uh, the legal profession. I'm sure you appreciate that an association such as yours is going to attract the attention of sore heads, people who feel that they've been badly done by, but in fact have not been treated uh, badly or illegally, if you look into the thing. Yes, I would, I would accept this, certainly. Uh, we have had a number of people already who have, uh, in one way or another, come into the association or endeavoured to come in, and uh, there's no doubt that their mental frustration, for one reason or another, uh, is, 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 is certainly uh, not conducive to having a real good case to offer or to fight for. But at the same time, uh, I think everybody, it's a human nature that if somebody has a complaint, whether they need psychiatric care or otherwise, we should never turn a blind eye to it and a deaf ear to it. I think we should try and see if there's anything that can be done because some of these cases indeed are as a result of legal manipulations and what have you. I have communications indeed from people, from single farmers and whatnot who have gone into mental homes and they've in their best handwriting which is sometimes very illegible they have uh, begged me to visit them and told me how to get to them without, uh, without worrying about the, the, the securities and whatnot and it does seem that there are people and I'm certain there are people in hospital today who have legitimate grievances. Oh yes, this this may very well be, but uh, you get letters, you say, from psychiatric patients. Now, you obviously will have to be very careful not to pillory any solicitor or lawyer on the basis of complaints such as this. This is quite true. Uh, we do take this precaution. Uh, we cannot, at this stage, pick and choose uh, who is right and who is wrong. We will be guided in this respect by the information which we gleam from the solicitor concerned to a certain degree, but we will also pursue it from from uh, other areas as well, which are perhaps best left unsaid at this stage. But we have our own reconnaissance, which we do regularly in the local area, to see if, if neighbours may know something, 
uh, about property and what have you, or if we can trace relatives abroad who may also be able to trust some light on a particular matter, where the person at home may be too ill to realise uh, the good or the bad of the case, or to, or to just uh, justify a judgment that would be would be uh, you know capable of of standing up in court. You say you have had already three or four hundred complaints. Could you categorise in very broad outline what the main causes of complaint are? What are the recurrent, repetitive causes? Uh, at the present time, the main cause of complaint uh, concerns property dealing. And it does appear as if uh, the legal profession, the solicitors in particular, have uh, forsaken all other aspects of their legal profession and devoted and, and are devoting the main, their main uh, time and energy to being involved in property transactions because obviously this is a very lucrative market for them. Uh, the farming community appear to be uh, the least well-versed of the general public in their dealings with the law. And frankly, and I don't like having to say this, but they are misled very often. And they do sign documents, indeed they have signed blank papers and uh, this, uh, in some cases, they're signing away their, their rights, total rights to their property. Apart from property, what other complaints do you get? Uh, the, one of the major complaints uh, uh, would be in the concerning of uh, the probating of wills, the great delays taking place, which are extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. Uh, in some cases, up to 5, 10, 15 years to probate wills. Uh, this seems to be the, the area where uh, I think the legal profession, they have acknowledged the loss side, they have acknowledged that this, is, that this needs rectification. But we, we see nothing yet in, uh, in, uh, being done in that area to, to, to put things right. I put it to Mr. Bell that many wills can be complicated by bad title, tax difficulties, the tracing of descendants, and sorting out these problems can take a long time. Unfortunately, the time consum uh, consuming here means that when the will is eventually probated, there's nothing left for the beneficiaries, or very little. It's not worth it. But it's not the lawyer's fault that he has to pursue all these descendants of the original owner of the property, does he not? Well, I think he should be compelled to give a time limit. If he is not capable of doing the job, I think that when it, when it exceeds two years, it's gone beyond the beyond. There's no, if a man is doing his job properly, if a lawyer is doing his job properly, he should be well able to conduct his business on that particular uh, client's interest, in that client's interest, within a, a period of two years. I asked Brian Roach, a colleague of Mr. Bell's, how he saw the purpose of the Association for Clients of the Legal Profession. Purpose seems to be to help the clients of the legal profession to protect themselves against misuse insofar as that is necessary. But it isn't a question of attacking the legal profession or making out that, that it's a profession of frauds or chancers. It's not like that. It will help the profession to protect itself. What has happened, of course, is quite easy to see. The last 10 years have produced terrible crises in the legal profession, of which perhaps the chief is increasing costs. They were in the past, in my youth. See, I'm a very old man now, I'm an old age pensioner, and of course that's the point I'd like to make, that I have no axe to grind. Uh, I've never had any trouble with the legal profession myself, and I'm the son of an Irish judge, my father, the late judge Bernard Roach, was a very good judge, he was a very good barrister, and I have that kind of background, and I wouldn't dream 
of, uh, as it were, going against the roots, which I spring myself. But that profession needs cleaning up, and they themselves know it. The Incorporated Law Society and the Disciplinary Committee, they do their best, but they seem to be very handicapped. They don't seem to be able to, to make headway. And I'm not accusing them of any kind of fraud or holding out. It seems to be in the nature of things. Well, uh, now you have the situation that they have to pay high wages, and there there is still trouble that although wages are laid down, they're not always able to pay them. And there are some 2,000 people involved with outstanding claims for wages, which all goes to show the terrible difficulty on which the profession is, is, is labouring. It is not a simple matter to be a solicitor today. You have to be a good lawyer. You have to be a very good businessman indeed. And you have, and as a businessman, you have to extend a little beyond the realm of law, for instance, such as the valuation of houses and things, which are really more an auctioneer's trade. And you have to be good at office management. And all this adds up to expense all round, including, of course, court outlay and things of that sort. So they have a, a shocking weight on their shoulders. What they're doing is they're adjusting themselves to this with very great difficulty, and inevitably there are casualties, and the public are suffering. There is an idea that some central department should be established to take control over all estates and proceeds of sales of houses and so on. This may have to come, but let us acknowledge at the same time how good the situation was in the past. If you had a good solicitor, he took charge of all these things, but the arrangement was flexible. He was an honest man, your estate was safe, he charged his costs, they were reasonable, and everything ended up pretty satisfactory. Uh, it was a very flexible, sound arrangement, but it depended on the honesty and integrity of the man. Well, undoubtedly, in modern times, in very modern times, uh, Due to the great strains, the attack on the solicitor's integrity has been... It has been successful to some extent, and they have lost a certain amount of face and integrity and public trust. But they'll get it back. Vincent Manning is a public representative who has some experience of complaints against lawyers. Uh, I'm a, an alderman on Dublin uh, City Council, and uh, uh, we meet the community on a regular basis to uh, identify what the problems in the area are and act on them. One of the things that were pointed out to us was the unsatisfactory service which a lot of people were getting from the legal profession uh, in regard to the transfer of title and the closing of sales of houses etc etc. So we agreed that we would hold a special general a special meeting to discuss this one particular problem of this uh, dissatisfaction with the legal profession and we had about 50 people at this particular meeting and um, we agreed that we would publicize it and um, that people who had problems would write to me and I would endeavor to give the, get them some type of a hearing. I have some, uh, to have some of their problems ironed out. I wrote to the Law Society and I asked them what exactly, uh, what recourse an ordinary citizen would have against the legal profession in the, in, in the view of all these complaints. And I was told, uh, in a letter from the Incorporated Law Society, that the the person would make a complaint to them, that is the Incorporated Law Society, about a particular solicitor. And they would send a copy of this complaint to the solicitor 
uh, involved and ask him to, to comment. And his comments would be uh, relayed then to the original complainant. Well, I must say that we were very happy with the, uh, the response that we had on that particular line because what we did was we hurried up uh, by complaining to the Incorporated Law Society and the Incorporated Law Society complaining to the solicitors. We hurried up a lot of the, 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 the wishy-washy things that were hanging there in the balance and which had been basically on a long finger. But where we are very dissatisfied is where the complaints fr uh, from the, com the, the complainant, more or less, are relayed to the solicitor. The solicitor's response to these are inadequate. So therefore, you've got to go to a higher level, which involves a, a disciplinary committee, if you like, within the legal profession. And I, or anybody else like me, have no recourse to these people. And they themselves have fallen down. And it is they who should have uh, progressed all complaints at a further stage, having, if you like, the, the, the uh, reached disagreement at one particular level, the disciplinary committee should have moved in and said, now let us sort it out to, from here. We were told by the Incorporated Law Society that 96% of the solicitors are the pillars of respectability of our society. Now we would accept that. It's the 4% that we are worried about and what we would want uh, done now is that the 96% would sort out the 4% and then we'll be all happy. Having listened to the murmurings of discontent in regard to the public's relations with solicitors, the obvious next step was to get the other point of view. I took up specific items of complaint with Walter Beatty, a spokesman for the Incorporated Law Society of Ireland. First, I raised the matter of a solicitor acting for both buyer and seller. I suggested that in such a case there had to be an element of conflict. Was there anything against the practice? Well, as things stand at the moment, there's nothing to prevent this. Any good solicitor, if there's a conflict, will not act for both parties because you can't serve two masters. There is a certain amount of disquiet at the idea of prohibiting acting for both parties because in some cases it is a way of keeping legal costs down and this, of course, is all, always desirable. I put it to Walter Beatty that in the question of fees, there's a notion abroad that the client is at the mercy of his legal adviser, that the solicitor can charge virtually any fee. Thankfully, this isn't the case because it would lead to enormous abuses. We're the only profession that has statutory control of our fees. We cannot have any increase in fees except by an order which is laid before both houses of the Oroctus and approved by them. If anybody is aggrieved by the fee charged by their solicitor, they can go to the High Court Taxing Master's Office and that fee can be reviewed in actions about car accidents where fees arise and the person claiming has to be paid the, the, the costs, these are always taxed. But solicitor and own client costs can be similar ta similarly taxed. And I would advise anybody who has a grudge to go and have their fees taxed. Now may I say one thing in relation to that, that in certain deals you have scales of fees, for example, in the buying and selling of property, isn't that so? That's right. Now in other cases you don't have these scales of fees, and as I understand it, a solicitor can determine for himself how much his time is worth. He can price his labour at £5 an hour or £50 an hour. He can, but 
every case will stand its own fee. And if he's overcharging, if he's charging £50 an hour, there's no way in which he's going to be paid. And if the matter is taxed by, by the taxing master, he won't allow him £50 an hour. The other consideration is this, that to go before the taxing master involves going before the High Court, presumably briefing a barrister, getting another solicitor to present the case, and so on. This involves you in more expense. It doesn't mean briefing a barrister. It does mean a fairly small fee to a solicitor because the solicitor subcontracts to a taxing accountant or cost drawer. And if the bill is reduced by one-third, the rogue solicitor will have to pay all the expenses. So going before the taxing master appears to be something of a gamble. If I interpret Walter Beatty correctly, it's only in the event of the taxing master finding that you've been overcharged 50%, surely an enormous overcharge, that the hearing doesn't involve you in further expense. I went on to ask the spokesman for the Incorporated Law Society whether there were any circumstances in which a solicitor could use client's money to his own advantage. A solicitor can never use his client's money. If he does, he's breaking the law because the client's money must go into a client's account and the client's account must always be in credit. There's nothing to stop a solicitor where he is holding small amounts or where he has large amounts for a day or couple of days having this money on deposit and indeed he can keep it on deposit for a longer time but it is the recommendation of the law society that any solicitor who has a substantial sum of money for any length of time should be earning interest for his client on that money and in fact the law society are looking into this aspect of the matter at the moment any solicitor who is an executor would be in breach of trust if he did not put the monies coming into the estate on deposit. And, of course, there cannot be a, a hard and fast rule without reference to the client that every penny goes on deposit because some clients might be very embarrassed if you put their money on deposit and they have to account to the revenue for the interest on the money and that would mean accounting for the source of the money. You say that this uh, can happen for a few days or possibly even for a longer period. Could you envisage money being on deposit for the solicitor's use over a period of years? I could certainly see small amounts on deposit over a period of years because there was nobody ascertained as to the destination of that money. Uh, I couldn't see a large amount of money on deposit for the solicitor's benefit over a period of years because I think most people try to live properly and do things properly and this wouldn't be obeying those ethics that we should all observe. But as things exist there is the possibility of someone without ethics doing this. Yes and this is why the Law Society is taking a hard look at this and we hope eventually in the near future to follow the Scottish Law Society system which lays down that if you have a large sum of money or if you have any money for a long time over a certain amount that it must automatically, if the client wants it, go on deposit. And incidentally, any client who tells their solicitor that their money is to be put on deposit, it must go on deposit. Would you favour the establishment of a central fund to look after clients' money? I don't think it would work, because I don't think that the public 
would want their money, which is entrusted in a very private capacity to their solicitor, to be subject to scrutiny from a central fund. Hundreds of years ago, Shakespeare wrote in Hamlet about the law's delays. Today, the most recurrent complaint by far is still the long and often inordinate delays in settling legal matters, especially the probating of wills. I would agree there has been an experience of delay and probating of wills. This is partly due to the rogue solicitor to which I've referred, the man who's not doing his work, and there are some people like this. And it has also been due to the estate duty system, which we have had until April last, and it has now been abolished. Under the new system, we are getting our probates out very fast, because with no estate duty to pay, there's no necessity for loads of queries, and the estate duty office are very efficient and are dealing with schedules of assets now in a week to ten days. So I think this is going to disappear. Apart from the probating of wills, what other areas have engendered long delays? Court work. And there is a problem here. Sometimes it has been because there have been too few judges. Sometimes it has been because the whole system lends itself to delay. One side is ready to go ahead and the other isn't. There may be a doctor who is involved in a heavy operation that day and he can't come and give evidence. And uh, there may be a situation where the case cannot come on because the solicitor wants to see how his client is getting on. It's, it's undesirable to bring the case on if there's going to be a relapse and the patient's position is going to deteriorate. It's a, a very much of a grey area, and there's always going to be delay in litigation work. I, I can never see how you're going to get a case disposed of in two or three months. We heard some comment earlier about the disciplinary function of the Law Society. What powers have they, in fact, over erring solicitors? The 1954 Solicitors Act gave the Law Society the right to strike off rogue solicitors. But subsequently this was challenged in the courts, and the Supreme Court decided, probably rightly, that this was a judicial function. Because if doctors are struck off by their medical association, it doesn't stop them practicing. But if a solicitor is, he cannot practice. So now the complaint about a rogue solicitor, is sent to the disciplinary committee, and if they find that there is a case against them on the facts, they refer it to the High Court. And the President of the High Court then deals with it, and he has the power to penalize that solicitor in costs, to make him pay a fine, worse still, to suspend him, or worse still, as he's done last year in three or four cases, strike him off. And that's the end of his means of earning a livelihood. But have you in the Law Society any disciplinary powers at all over solicitors, apart from threatening them with uh, this final kind of judgment in court? We have no right at all to penalise them in any way because it has been decided by the Supreme Court that we cannot act in a judicial function, and all we can do is refer it to the High Court. Well, how far does your influence run with solicitors? Very far. 
very few solicitors want to go against their own peers and I, I know that a solicitor of good standing would uh, find himself very embarrassed to be even referred to a preliminary investigation. But of course we're not concerned with solicitors of good standing, it's the ones of bad standing and probably they don't mind that much because they're going to go that way anyhow. And incidentally, I would like to emphasize that we are very anxious that solicitors who are letting down the profession be disciplined and, if necessary, be struck off because these are the people who are causing all the disquiet at the moment. Walter Beatty expressed the opinion that delay in some of the processes of the law is inevitable. Court work is the worst aspect of this business, and I wondered if anything could be done to speed it up. I put the question to the Attorney General. Uh, yes, uh, there, are, there are these complaints, um, and I think um, in many cases they are justified, and I think something can be done about them. Uh, in particular, I think if uh, we could examine very carefully court procedures uh, with a view to their reformation, if we could examine um, in great detail many of our laws which require to be updated and reformed and consolidated, this I think would cut out um, some of the delays which, which occur and I think would, would make for a better service of the public. Well, how far have you got in this ambition of yours to speed up delays? Well, the Law Reform Commission has been established. As you know, uh, legislation was passed establishing the Law Reform Commission. Uh, it has been established. We've been very fortunate with the people who've agreed to act on it. And whilst it's only just been established and hasn't yet uh, effectively started its work, um, I would hope that the Law Reform Commission would be a means of helping to deal with the problem that you've been discussing. Some people are terrified of getting embroiled in legal matters because they are fearful of the expense. I said to the Attorney General that this sometimes leads to the charge that there's one law for the rich and one for the poor. I think that's uh, one of these statements which requires um, much greater amplification. Um, if in fact the statement implies that we should have a system of uh, free legal aid in civil matters, I'd certainly favoured fa favor this view. As you know, it's been uh, examined at the moment by the committee under the chairmanship of Mr Justice Pringle, and um, I understand that its report should be available soon. Um, but I would strongly uh, favour the idea of free legal aid. But uh, at the present time, legal aid is available for people who haven't got means, but it's available more as a charity rather than as a right, and I'm in favour of legal aid being available as a right, and I would hope that this would come about as a result of the, the Pringle Committee's report. It is available at the moment in criminal cases, but not in civil cases. That, that, that is the position. And you hope to extend it to civil cases? Th this is what the Pringle Committee is considering, the system of free legal aid for civil cases. And not just free legal aid in cases, but legal advice too. This brings in the whole question of uh, advice centres and the availability of lawyers to advise people, not, not in situations where they're involved in litigation, but in relation to the problems, and the everyday problems which, on which they need legal advice. Well, as you know, the free legal aid centres are already operating on a limited basis, at least staffed by young lawyers and helped by their older colleagues. Would you see this becoming subsidised by the state, as it were? Uh, yes, it, it, FLAC is doing marvellous work. They're, they're, they're doing extremely good uh, and important national public service. 
Um, but it, uh, and I would like to see this extended, and I'm, I know they would too. And um, so what I would like to see are legal aid um, advice centres uh, in the Dublin suburbs, for example, in the main centres of population throughout Ireland, uh, where there would be lawyers staffing them, available to people who would come in with their legal problems. Now, uh, this would require the cooperation of the legal profession, I'm sure it will be forthcoming. Uh, it is, has developed in Northern Ireland, it has developed in England on very satisfactory lines, and I hope to see it happening here too. There is a certain fear of the law by the layman. Do you think uh, what you've just suggested may help to overcome this? Uh, there is that fear, and I think what I've suggested would help to overcome it. I know from my own personal experience that people are, are in frightened and upset by the concept of having to go to see lawyers, and many people with legal problems w won't get into a bus and come into a solicitor's office in town. This is why I think if you have advice centres out in the suburbs uh, where people can go it can, can call in without having to go through the formality of getting in touch with a solicitor and not knowing to whom, whom they can contact. And um, if it becomes accepted that this is a, a, a system of advice available as of right to citizens, then I think this fear can be overcome. So the Attorney General has plans to humanise the law and to make it more accessible to the ordinary man. He also has high hopes of the Law Reform Commission of which he spoke. Apart from his interest in the future of the profession, there are other forces at work. The National Prices Commission recently commissioned Professor Dennis Lees, an economic consultant, to review the income and expenses of solicitors, to look at what business they do, to consider delays, and to say how increased efficiency can be affected. He is also to determine, incidentally, how far the solicitor's present claim for increased fees should be met. Added to all this is an awareness of problems on the part of both the Incorporated Law Society and the Association for Clients of the Legal Profession. With all this activity, who knows, maybe before too long, the law and the layman will move closer together. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.